Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You'll also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody. Al Bernstein here with episode number three of our podcast slash show called Al Bernstein Unplugged. Happy that you joined us for this episode. We have some fun things planned for you uh, today. For one thing, in our interview segment, we talked to Bob Arum, the head of Top Rank Boxing, a legendary figure in the sport of boxing, a man that I have had uh, a long history with, uh, dating all the way back to 1980 when I did the uh, ESPN Top Rank Boxing Series on ESPN and I, many of the great pay-per-views that I did in the 80s and 90s and even into the 2000s um, were done by uh, Top Rank Boxing. Also, we will look back in our flashback section at a fight that interestingly Top Rank promoted and it was done for Showtime where I broadcast it and that was the first fight between Orlando Salido and uh, Juan Manuel Lopez. It was an action-packed affair down in Puerto Rico uh, that changed the landscape of the lower weight divisions and certainly changed the career path of Juan Manuel Lopez and created lots of excitement. And on that one, I'm going to tell a story that I have never told publicly. So you're going to find out a little piece of backstage information that uh, has never been revealed. Uh, we're also going to answer your questions. Uh, we got some great questions from all of you uh, leading into this show, so we're going to answer those. And working with me as uh, he does is my good friend and colleague and fine broadcaster, Trip Mitchell. Trip, how are you? I am great, Al. And our number one fan is someone that I know through marriage. And that's my father-in-law. Ah. And Saul Klein, 85-year-old retired doctor from New York, okay. and he loves the show, but he goes, Al knows so much about boxing history. Could we profile more fights from the 40s and 50s? And I didn't want to tell him that Showtime and ESPN weren't around then. So, You know what? Yeah, I, I was not doing fights in the 40s and the, <laughs> the 50s, um, but uh, uh, I was exceptionally good at collecting baseball cards in the 50s, though. I did that okay. very well when I was about <laughs> seven and eight. You know, the first fight I ever watched, probably one of the first fights I, I really ever watched was in 1959 when I saw Sugar Ray Robinson. And it made me a lifelong Sugar Ray Robinson fan. Um, so that was actually when I started watching boxing. So no, I, I probably couldn't really go back and have it be a personal experience, but certainly those were, were great decades. Do you think that, when do you think boxing was at its peak in this country, where it arguably may be the number two sport behind baseball? Yeah, probably. That's, that's a good question. You know, we're going to talk a little in one of our questions about uh, the different decades in boxing, but I think that uh, baseball and boxing were the two major sports, I'm going to say all the way through about, uh, along with horse racing, which was huge, I'm going to say that was maybe the case all the way through, uh, I'm going to say the late 40s to the early 50s. Then the NFL really started to um, become popular in the 50s, more popular. Uh, and the NBA had gotten a toehold as well. Um, but uh, I'm going to say up to that point, boxing and, and baseball and horse racing were the, the sports that 
commanded the attention of the American public the most. Do you ever, on a personal level, go, it would have been great to have your career in the 40s and 50s? Would have been oh, a lot I, of fun. Yeah, I think about that because that's, it's really interesting. I love going back in time, and I love that era. Like, I love to listen to old-time radio shows, the dramas <laughs> that they had back then. I think it was a fascinating era. And so, yeah, if, if I could go back and be Bill Stern, right, in, the, in, the, in that era, uh, you know, that would be – I've often thought that would be a fun and interesting time to ply your craft. So, but. Uh, Unfortunately, I couldn't do it. But for your father-in-law, somewhere down the road here, we're going to include something from that era just to make him feel good because I want to keep, I want to keep peace in your family. And that is very important. Yeah, I view that as my major role. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. So we've gotten some great, as you said, your Twitter followers ask us great questions. And you can tell they're pretty knowledgeable about the sport. First question, has MMA hurt the overall interest in boxing? Yeah, that's a misnomer, I think. I believe it's a misnomer uh, that was kind of perpetuated by a lot by a lot of, for the most part, by uh, a lot of radio talk show hosts who weren't willing to really dig in and, 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 and kind of see this through a nuanced lens. Imagine that, uh, somebody in the sports media not looking at something through a nuanced lens. That has never <laughs> happened before, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, they take this approach that because MMA got really popular, which it did, that it was all at the expense of boxing. And I don't believe that. I, and I think now we're really seeing signs of that. I believe that co there's, the combat sports tent has plenty of room in it for both sports. And there are fans that like one and not the other. No question about that. But there are many, many fans that like both. And I think a lot of the younger fans um, who are MMA fans in recent years, when they've seen some of these great fights that have been more available to them now, let's be honest, fights are on the over, over the air networks like Fox. They're on ESPN more. ESPN made a bigger commitment back to boxing again. Um, FS1, all those places, as well as, of course, on the premium channel like Showtime and DAZN, which is a, you know, uh, uh, an internet uh, deliverer where young people are more accustomed to getting their, um, their entertainment, and their information. And so the, all of that has given better access to young people to occasionally see a boxing match. And if they see a really exciting one, kind of whets their appetite to see another. So I do not believe that mixed martial arts has hurt boxing. I, don't, I think the two can accommodate themselves quite well um, in this sporting environment. And you, interestingly enough, living in Las Vegas, you were around when the Fertitta family bought UFC. And people don't know, they lost a lot of money their first couple of years. So it wasn't a guaranteed outcome. No. Oh, my God. Dana White will tell you stories about how they were operating in this tiny little office space that uh, they were wondering from day to day, would they even be uh, in existence? And uh, I did a, a uh, uh, many, many years ago, I did an infomercial for them uh, when they wanted boxing people to be involved, to give them some credibility. And, uh, um, and to his credit, Dana White remembered I did that favor for him. And, and, and then in reciprocation, uh, when uh, when I needed his help in, in in raising funds for the caring place, which is a cancer facility that my wife uh, and I and other people formed here in Las Vegas, he really um, went to bat and helped us at a fundraiser raise almost four hundred thousand. So that was a, a, a wonderful gesture on his part. And your advice to Dana to overcome his shyness and try to be a little larger on TV kind if of worked he, out. 
if he just wasn't such an introvert, I think everything <laughs> would work out fine for him. He's got to come out of his shell. <laughs> so the next question, um, and it, um, this guy is a heck of a nice guy, but he said, I want to say that you're one of the nicest men in boxing. How about that? Oh, that was sweet. I appreciate that. And uh, he didn't say overall in life. But, no, just you know, in boxing. I'll take boxing. Okay. He sent that to Adrian Broner as well. Yeah. And, <laughs> He also asked, how much you, did you enjoy calling the Valero-DeMarco fight? Yeah, um, you know, Edwin Valero, who has since left us, uh, that was his last fight against Antonio DeMarco. And we had it on Showtime, and we were expecting to end up be showing a bunch of Edwin Valero fights after that. And he was a young man who had unbounded potential, led a very troubled life, uh, and had many, many issues. And by the way, to find out about those issues, I recommend a book by Don Stradley, who's a very fine writer. The book is called Berserk, and it's the life story of Edwin Valero. And it's a noir, from a noir series that uh, Hamilcar uh, Publications does. And so it's not a gigantic book. It's a, a condensed, but very, very interesting and readable book about Edwin Valero, and I highly recommend it. Folks can go to the Hamilcar website, which we are putting up there for you, and they can, uh, they can find this. But it, it really tells the story of Edwin Valero, who ended up dying uh, at a young age, uh, and uh, he was, to say he was troubled is the understatement of the decade, and um, committed murder, and would just a very difficult story. But as a fighter, he had tremendous potential. And that fight with DeMarco was where he was starting to show that potential to the world. He had already scored a slew of knockouts fighting in Japan. But people were, were wondering, when he starts stepping up in competition, how good will he be? The other part of that question, I think there was an addendum to it about how I think he would do with uh, other fighters. And when he stepped up, would he be able to fight at the highest level? I believe he would have. And I think uh, it would have been a very, very good career for him. Well, great. Thank you for bringing up the addendum. Uh, I see it right here in front of me. Reading is fundamental. <laughs> <laughs> it's a skill, you know. Yeah, it's a skill. <laughs> Al, if you had to pick, what would you say is the best decade in boxing history, which kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier? Right. Now, obviously, the first decades that I became aware of, even as a fan, for the most part, were the 60s and 70s. Uh, and the first, the time I started working in boxing was 1980. Well, early, late 70s, because I was writing for boxing magazines from about 78 uh, on, and I wrote a book on boxing just before, around 1979. So the late 70s is when I got involved with it. But the 1980s were an extraordinary, it was an extraordinary decade. And I would pick that as the greatest decade maybe ever for boxing. And here's the way I can do that without having seen all those other decades firsthand. Gil Clancy, the great broadcaster, trainer, manager, uh, Hall of Famer, uh, who was a kind of a mentor to me. I was sitting and having lunch with him, I'm going to say around 1984, 1985, uh, mid-80s. And I said to him, I said, uh, I said, I, you know, I'm, I don't know all the times before this. And Gil had seen the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, and maybe, you know, probably not the 30s, but he, he saw a lot of the, the, the time in boxing before. And I said, 
how does this decade, it seems extraordinary to me, how does it stack up to all the rest? He said, this is the best. He said, we're halfway through this decade. He said, and I can assure you that this is going to end up being the, the best that I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, that's pretty extraordinary coming from Bill Clancy. And the 80s were remarkable. You know, we think of the, the Four Kings, which we talked about, you know, when we did our flashback on Hagler, Hearns, and uh, we think of those fighters. But there were so many other great fighters during the 80s. Um, Alexis Arguello, Pryor, Holmes, Michael Spinks. Uh, you can go on and on and on and on. And, and that, that decade was was amazing so i think it uh it produced the biggest volume of great fights and remember it was a time when it was the sport was being seen on over the air tv every saturday and sunday to huge audiences and so the sport you talked before about when boxing's you know was still a uh, a major sport in the united states not a niche sport it was while it while the NBA and NFL, of course, had superseded boxing at that point. Uh, still, the sport was huge, and and uh, and the casual sports fan was very involved. So I picked the uh, 1980s as my my best decade. Now our, we've done some already done a, a flashback from the 1980s. The one that we're going to do today for, is from a different era, and it is time for our flashback. Today's flashback, we go to April 16, 2011, and it's a match between Juan Manuel Lopez and Orlando Salido. Now, uh, this was a match in which Juan Manuel Lopez was undefeated. He, had, uh, he was a champion uh, and was putting his championship on the line uh, against Salido. He was 29 years old and, and was 29 and 0, and he was a fighter who had been, who was a superstar and was still a superstar at that point. Uh, and Salido was a former champion, an IBF featherweight champion, who was looking to get back into the title picture. Now, Salido came in with a record of 36-11-2. Doesn't sound that impressive, does it? And yet, he was, in fact, a very, very tough challenger. Now, here's a story that I have never told uh, before, but uh, I, I think fans will find it kind of intriguing. Before this fight, you know, uh, top ranked boxing was working with Showtime, and then uh, Ken Hirschman, who was then the um, the head of sports at Showtime, had to evaluate who the opponent for Juan Manuel Lopez should be. Well, top ranked sent over a list of I think three fighters, all good fighters, and. Two of the three had pretty sparkling records and were, were potentially good challenges. He asked me, uh, he sent me a note asking for a recommendation on this, which he sometimes would do. And I recommended Orlando Salido as the, uh, as the uh, fighter. Uh, and he was a little surprised because he saw his record. And then he called me on the phone and I explained why Salido was really a tough opponent, and this would be a very difficult fight for Lopez. Unbeknownst to me, he also did the same thing with Steve Farhood. And <laughs> Steve Farhood apparently also recommended Orlando Salido. And, and uh, whether we were the tipping point or not in making Salido the uh, opponent, 
uh, it would make a big difference to boxing history at that time, and certainly to Juan Manuel Lopez, uh, that he ended up being his opponent. This was a battle between Mexico, Toledo, and Puerto Rico, and Lopez, a, a, a long-time rivalry that has given boxing some great, great fights. And so they were ready to fight and to find out best what happened in the fight. Let's take a, uh, a look and a listen to my recap of what happened that evening. In our main event, Juan Manuel Lopez was effective over the first three rounds against Orlando Salido, probably winning all of those rounds. Lopez loves to take chances. That's what makes him such an exciting fighter. But things took a dramatic turn in the fourth when Salido hurt him and hurt him badly. Salido, constant pressure. And then in the fifth round, he would knock Lopez down, send him to the canvas, and keep him in trouble. The sixth was much like the fifth round, with Salido attacking relentlessly. In the seventh round, Lopez was able to put some punches together of his own. But in the eighth round, Orlando Salido came back with the thunderous right hands and big left hooks and was able to stop Lopez in that round. A controversial stoppage by referee Roberto Ramirez. And so Juan Manuel Lopez lost his title, lost his undefeated record, and um, the stoppage was a little bit controversial, uh, but I think inevitably Lopez would have been stopped in that fight in any case. Now, leading into this fight, there had been signs that Juan Manuel Lopez might be having some cracks in the armor. Uh, you know, he, against Rogers Matagua in a fight several years before that I did, uh, he was hurt so bad in the final rounds that he was staggering around in the 12th round, barely made it through in what was a wildly exciting fight. And the fight before this against Rafael Marquez, who was then a 35-year-old veteran, though he had been a legendary champion in the lower weight classes, he struggled for eight rounds. It was a war until Marquez uh, stopped because of a shoulder injury. So we saw that there were signs that Lopez might be eroding a little bit. This fight, of course, uh, kind of uh, was testimony to that fact. Juan Manuel Lopez would fight Salido again, and the same result. He would lose in Puerto Rico again by stoppage, and it dramatically affected Lopez's career uh, as he moved forward. And for Salido, it was, those were maybe the best time of his professional career and created a, a very big uh, win for him the second time as well as it did the first. And these two fighters were provided two of the most exciting fights that we've had uh, on Showtime uh, in, in all our time. And as I mentioned, that fight was, uh, both fights were promoted by Top Rank Boxing. And our guest for this show is the man that runs Top Rank Boxing, has always since its inception. Uh, he is uh, an extraordinarily large figure in the sport, has been ever since he did uh, his first fight, which involved Muhammad Ali. Uh, and over the years, Bob Arum has made some of the biggest matches in boxing history. But more importantly, as also, as we'll discuss in this interview, uh, made history with doing smaller and more important fights like the the fights that were in the series of the ESPN Top Ranked Boxing Series. So here is our conversation 
with Bob Arum. Bob, it is a delight to visit with you, uh, even under these circumstances when uh, we're all going through a, a very, very strange time, both inside and outside of sports. Um, and I, I guess before we get going, and we're going to talk a little bit about some anniversaries that Top Rank has had, as well as the present and the future, um, you've lived through important times uh, in our history, and you're a person who's uh, very aware of uh, of world affairs and uh, and and all that goes with that. How are you personally reacting to what we're going through, and how do you see it in kind of a, a cosmic view? Well, first, Al, uh, you know I've been around a long time. Uh, I've never seen anything like this. Mm. Uh, I don't, you know, uh, younger people can say that, but they've been around a lot fewer years than I have. I'm 88, <laughs> and nothing like this. But it gives you an opportunity uh, for a lot of uh, introspection mm. and uh, to review uh, what you've done and what you've been involved in in your career. And uh, I think that's been good. And, uh, you know, there's a great, great desire uh, for sports fans, particularly those that miss the uh, current live sports. Uh, boxing lends itself to going back in time and watching classic fights uh, because unlike football, which is very, very hard to do replays of games uh, because there's so much uh, lag time, boxing matches are relatively exciting and you see things almost for the first time. And mm -hmm. I watched uh, uh, ESPN did 11 hours yeah, of fights. Uh, and they were revealing. I mean, <laughs> I watched that uh, Ali uh, Liston fight and stuff that I remember uh, talking about, like the substance in Ali's eyes you see happening right before you. I mean, and, and watching uh, like at the Ali Fraser fights have been absolutely fantastic. There's so many great, great fights uh, that uh, we're gonna be rolling out, not only uh, uh, while this uh, current situation goes on, but in the future. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'll be interested in this, uh, we, we're talking with ESPN about doing uh, uh, regular uh, telecasts uh, on ESPN Plus, their streaming section, taking the best of the old top-ranked boxing <laughs> that, that weekly show. Right. I mean, I mean uh, a lot of them involving fighters that the current generation has never heard of. But some fights, Al, you were, did most of them. I mean, absolutely the most exciting, interesting fights that one could ever see. And because now that people uh, at ESPN, and I guess at Showtime and other places, realize uh, how people want to see uh, these uh, old fights, we'll be getting a lot more of them uh, 
than we've had before. Yeah, that's for sure. And you referenced the Top Rank series. You recently celebrated the 40th anniversary of when that started. That started back in 1980. Uh, and I think that's great that ESPN is going to be showing those, that the day of that you referenced where you showed, a, I think it was an 11-hour block of uh, – well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to require you. You got to get on a phone with Trampler, with Bruce Trampler, <laughs> who, who uh, along with Teddy, who, Teddy Brenner, who's passed on, yeah. uh, was the matchmaker. And you remember, and he'll remember, uh, so many of those good shows sure. because we're not going to have the time uh, until a little later to comb through those shows. We did, I mean, 52. Minimum, we did 52 shows a year. Amazing. And, and you remember when they had the baseball strike? I think we were doing 80 shows a year. <laughs> I mean, but some, I mean, I mean, crazy stuff. Remember we did a Halloween show where one of the fighters came in in a coffin. Yeah, that was a vampire Johnson, Johnson, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was that series was, which as you pointed out, so many shows were done more than now. It, it seems amazing when you started that series and you knew you had to produce all those fights. Was that logistically something you guys really had to plan for? And how, how hard was that to produce that many boxing matches over the course of a year? Well, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. <laughs> because it had never been done before. No, never had. And, and and the budget, because ESPN was very, very small at that time. I think they had 4 million cable owns, yeah. uh, and they had to pay the cable uh, systems uh, to carry ESPN then. And it was the only live thing that ESPN had. Yes. The other stuff was tapes of Australian rules football. You remember, we all became experts in Australian rules football. Monster trucks. I remember when I was over a couple of years ago in Australia, they were stunned that I knew about the rules because I had watched so much on ESPN. But anyway, uh, the first show I remember was in Atlantic City, and we had Russell Peltz and Frank Gelb working with it, and that went well. And the second show was in your hometown, yes. Tony Terrell. So I get there. Remember, we're only getting $10,500 a show from uh, ESPN. For them, it was a lot of money. But, you know, even then, you couldn't pay the fighters uh, on, on that. It was a two-and-a-half-hour show. So I get to Chicago, and Ernie has 11 fights. <laughs> and I went, Ernie, what are you, crazy 11 fights? I mean, who can afford it? Well, Ernie knew what he was doing. Those 11 fights yes. barely lasted an hour and a half. Yeah. I mean, Remember one that. round knockouts after <laughs> another. And now we had no library. So I had to get in the ring yes. and for an hour had a filibuster and talk <laughs> a lot of nonsense. But anyway, it worked out. We got some great, great fights. Mel Greb uh, was the matchmaker for the fights in uh, – Las Vegas, uh, we had those Ice Palace uh, shows in uh, Totowa, New Jersey, sure. that had a lot of fight. I mean, it was great. And we had, you know, it, it was, the fan base was enormous. You know, Sal Marciano, you remember him? When a guy got knocked down, 
Good night, sweet prince. I mean, just classic stuff. There were a lot of great memories. And uh, one of the things about that series was, while a lot of the fights were in Atlantic City and Las Vegas, the charm of it was that we went to these locations that were not hotbeds of boxing necessarily. They were small towns. And it was like the circus coming to town. And uh, we had crazy things happen, like two blackouts, one in West Virginia, one in Rhode Island. So you never knew what you were going to face as a promoter or as a broadcaster. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, you know, doing all of these fights on a weekly basis, sometime, I mean, a fighter would have to pull out. I remember <laughs> uh, a, a main event that we had in Las Vegas. Uh, when the fighter, I forget who he was, he was a lighter weight fighter, uh, Ali, Terrence Ali. Terrence Ali, right, that's got, right. Got, it, got off the table and, and sprained his back. Yep. And going into the ring, he was hurt, so he couldn't fight. That was an anniversary show, I think our fifth anniversary or something. At the showboat, yeah. That's right, Brett Summers was fighting him. And you yeah. had to find somebody to fight to replace that. That was crazy. Exactly. Yeah, it was nutty stuff. But it, the, it created a wonderful series and helped many boxers become, become stars. Um, the other anniversary, before we get into the present day uh, of boxing, the other anniversary that you that was celebrated in the last couple of weeks was the 35th anniversary of Marvin Hagler and, and uh, Tommy Hearns. Uh, one of the many great fights that Top Rank did during the 1980s, primarily in Las Vegas, though other locations as well, involving the, the, um, uh, the Four Kings. And that one was, turned out to be one of the most extraordinary events uh, of all of them. Um, I, caught, I caught the replay Saturday on ESPN, and there you were next to Al Michaels. Yes, that was doing that was an interesting pairing. Yeah, yeah, that was funny. And Kurt Gowdy was the host. You guys right. brought in Kurt to host it, which added a lot of great flavor to oh, it. Was great. Remember, Irving Rudd was the PR guy, a, an absolute genius. So Rudd uh, talked to me, and I gave him permission, and he went down to Washington and met with the IRS because the fight was held on April 15th. And so he got the IRS to do a commercial with Hagler and Hearns that, you know, make sure you watch our fight on closed circuit. And, but before you watch the fight, make sure you pay your taxes. <laughs> That's I mean, it was great. Irving was, the Irving IRS was, was plugging the pipe, but Irving was yeah. a genius. He was a genius. He was a remarkable man. And that fight was on a Monday night, which was intriguing. No, uh, it's not intriguing. You know why they were on Monday nights? Do you know yeah. That? Yeah, it was Monday. Because, yeah, of course it was Monday and Tuesday. Yeah. But Monday nights, first of all, the casinos loved them on Monday yeah. night, you see, because they'd get the punters for an extra two days. Sure. So they loved Monday nights. But we did them on Monday nights because – outside of the football season, because on Mondays, uh, the cinemas were empty or virtually empty because people would go to the movies on the weekends. And so right. Monday, there would be very small audiences. So you could get cinemas and you could get arenas uh, for your closed circuit telecast. You couldn't get them on the weekends because they were busy with events or with movies. Sure. So you had to go on a Monday, 
And of course, in the winter, when you had Monday Night Football, which was, you know, the huge, biggest thing going, uh, we, we then shifted to Tuesday, and the casinos would pay more for the event on a Tuesday, because they got the people yet another night. That's great. That was great. Well, that series was wonderful. And the Hagler-Hearns uh, fight turned out to be a, uh, you know, a brilliant, brilliant uh, event. You had a long relationship with Marvin Hagler. And uh, uh, I think probably, you know, you've had relationships with superstar fighters that lasted for a long time where you really enhanced their career and they were with you. Hagler has to be right near the top of the list of rewarding uh, relationships. Well, the thing I loved about Marvin was his tremendous loyalty. Yeah. Uh, in other words, Marvin was, uh, I, I did all of the fights le leading up to Marvin winning the championship. And uh, uh, I did so many of Marvin's fights and we became really close, but he always had my back. See, a lot of fighters don't. For example, when Ray uh, got out of retirement and decided that he wanted to fight Marvin, uh, I was uh, sideways with uh, Ray's lawyer and, uh, and manager, uh, Mike Trainer, And he said, well, yeah, we'll do that fight, but without uh, top rank, without Aaron. And uh, Marvin said in no uncertain terms, that either top rank is the promoter or there's no fight. Interesting. And, and that we were talking about really unbelievable money. And uh, train that back down. And I, I remember I bought, you could talk to Ray about it because I love Ray dearly. I, we bought Ray out for 11 million and Marvin fought on a percentage and made 19 million. And Ray will never forget Never forgive me for that, but it wasn't my fault. That's funny. Oh, that's great. That's great. Good inside story. Um, yeah, that and uh, and Marvin Hagler went on to become obviously one of the great figures of all time uh, in the sport of boxing. Well, that, we are currently in a situation in which um, a boxing, of course, is uh, on hold as we try and grapple with the health issues uh, surrounding all of us. And you did a really good interview with Christina Poncher, who does the interviews for uh, your company, does such a great job. And you kind of outlined a little bit what some of the possibilities are for top rank and, and I'm guessing by extension also for ESPN, kind of getting easing back into uh, doing live boxing. It obviously would be without crowds at the beginning. And you talked to her a little bit about doing it in the summer from certain fixed locations. What's kind of the general uh, game plan for that? Well, we're only going to do it, Al, if we can do it safely. Yeah. I mean, we're not cowboys like the uh, UFC, Dana White uh, people, who have absolutely no sense when it comes to uh, doing these events other than the show must go on. I want the show to go on, but I want it to be done in a safe and sound way. And we're working right now uh, with the commissions, uh, with the Nevada Commission, uh, with the California Commission, as to how you get it done. I, I, in essence, uh, the <clears throat> what we're finding out is that to get it done safely, 
you have to have testing. And that's you, you, when you put on your television, you watch the news, that's what they talk about is testing. Without testing, you can't do it. But with testing, you can do it. You can bring the fighters in. We're, we're thinking uh, if we're in Nevada, make a deal with a hotel, get, uh, bring the fighters in, put them under quarantine after you mm -hmm. test them, uh, have them uh, train or, uh, uh, in the top-ranked gym, which we're right now sanitizing and sterilizing, uh, and all in the controlled environment, and then uh, make sure we test not only the fighters and the corner people, uh, but the, uh, 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 the ring officials, the, the judges, uh, the referees, no reason for judges having to be right up against ringside. They can be back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Also, the television announces and so forth can be back a little bit. Uh, everybody got to be tested. It's got to be a, including camera people. Right. And uh, if you do that, you can, uh, and imposing quarantines, you can do uh, two or three events a week without audiences. Uh, obviously, you can't do eight to ten fights a show, but you can do three or four, sure. and you'll give the public the ability to watch live sports. I mean, that's the best we're going to do. Now, how you do a major event, how we do a Fury Wilder fight, number three, uh, that we're, we're talking, we're talking to BBC about a uh, number of problems. Uh, number one is a travel ban. Tyson sure. is over in England. How do you get him over here? How do you get Wilder to the UK? You can't. I mean, not now. So all of that is, you know, is being under consideration. Uh, and then how do you do a fury wilder fight without an audience uh you know the gate on the last fight was 17 million dollars how do you replace that and people say well you know people are starved for big sporting events you'll make it up on pay-per-view and i said no you won't number one so many people are out of work so many people are living paycheck to paycheck who is going to pay $80 to watch a boxing match. I mean, your audience has to be diminished because of that. And secondly, we were able to get big prices on pay-per-view because people uh, congregate and they do 10 couples and everybody puts in $10 and it's a cheap evening that way. But you can't do that now because uh, of, uh, yeah, of having to keep people apart. So, I mean, these are dilemmas that we're going to have to figure out uh, what we're going to do. And obviously, uh, can you do it if the fighters take less? Maybe, but how much less are they going to be willing to take? And uh, can we do it uh, based on the old economic model? No, because. Uh, uh, Heyman and ourselves uh, are not 
the problems and I don't, I mean, I can point out the problems. I don't unfortunately have the answers. Sure. Well, and you mentioned in your interview with Christina that the initial fights that you're thinking of doing in the summer uh, would be more like 10 round, really good competitive 10 round fights where you don't necessarily, you can put them on and economically in terms of commerce, it makes sense without some monstrous gate uh, and could still provide entertaining fights for people. Now, that is absolutely correct. And we'd also do some title fights where we could. Mm -hmm. I mean, not these big blockbusters, but interesting <clears throat> title fights. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, we were looking forward in April to doing this great Bantamweight championship with the Japanese kid, the, the monster Inui, uh, against Casimero. That was a great so, fight. Yes, and that would have been a great fight. Sean Gibbons, who's the manager of Casimero, brought, him, brought Casimero over to the United States. As a matter of fact, he's training now in Vegas. But Inui is in Japan. And because of the travel ban, we can't bring him over. Right. And we can't send Casimero to do the fight in Japan. They got problems that are bigger than ours now. They've closed down the boxing. Uh, so how do you get that fight done? I mean, I don't know. I mean, eventually we'll get it done. But in the foreseeable future, no. But since Casimero was here, uh, and he is, like all fighters, looking for action, he can fight, defend his title. Sure. Yeah. He makes good fights. Uh, there are a lot of other fighters. Uh, the, uh, uh, we, I mean, uh, Jose Ramirez uh, was scheduled twice to fight uh, Postel. Uh, we would like to do uh, Ramirez uh, and Postel without an audience in July. I mean, we would like, and that's an interesting fight. We sure. get it done. So there'd be a lot of a number of title fights, but there'd be also like uh, Pedraza and Molina, mm -hmm. great ten cool. round fight. Uh, uh, Tiafimo Lopez uh, scheduled to fight uh, Lomachenko. It's a fight everybody's looked forward to, but Loma went back to Ukraine to be with his family once the epidemic uh, uh, hit. Uh, and uh, uh, how, you, how do you do that fight with a travel ban? The answer is you can't. But Tiafimo is a young, active guy, and I talked with his father uh, uh, a night or so ago, and we would have Tiafimo defend his title against a, a good uh, opponent. So we're going to make do. Are we going to get the best fights possible? Uh, the best, biggest fights? No, we're not going to be able to do it, particularly with the travel ban. How do we get uh, Bedebeoff, uh, the, uh, the, the great light heavyweight? How do we get him in action? We're finding out whether he's uh, even in Canada. And if he's in Canada, there's a, a ban over the border. How do you get him in here? Uh, you know, all of these are problems but they're problems that with good sense, they'll be solved as long as we don't act irresponsibly. We don't act like cowboys. We have to do it 
not looking to get around the regulations, but to work with the regulations. That makes sense. Uh, in closing, are you optimistic that uh, you'll be able to, at some point in the summer, be able to, within the guidelines, put on some boxing? Absolutely. Yeah. We are really planning. Uh, Trampler and Goodman are working on matches. We hope to be operational in the first week of June. Okay. That's aspirational. That's aspirational. But we're really looking forward uh, to start doing these events. And once we gear up, we're going to go like, like hell, two, three shows a week. Wow, that's because, because there's no other competition as far as other sports. And I think that, uh, that PBC is going to look to ramp up uh, in June. And, uh, you know, it may mean that we lend them some of our fighters, they lend us some of their fighters, depending who is up and ready to go. But uh, with the cooperation that occurred on the, uh, the last uh, Fury Wilder fight, uh, I think all the animosity has dissipated and mm. we can work together, particularly in these trying times, to give the public the best possible boxing available. That's a newsflash. And before I let you go, I want to dig down on that for a second. Um, you were able to, uh, uh, top ranking PBC were able to put together the Wilder Fury fight and it was a very successful event. Uh, and, and you've talked actively about the idea of things like the um, uh, Bud Crawford, Errol Spence fight. You're feeling it sounds more optimistic that there can be this merger more often for big fights that fans want to see. Not only do I think, I know, I mean, the, uh, we uh, in boxing were given a lesson in cooperation by ESPN and Fox. Mm -hmm. uh, they worked together uh, seamlessly uh, to publicize and present uh, the uh, Wilder Fury fight. Uh, and we uh, were caught up in that collegial kind of behavior and acted accordingly. So our people rave about the PBC people, how smart they were and how cooperative they were. And I think they felt the same way about us. So uh, thanks to the leadership of ESPN and Fox, uh, we were able uh, to work together so well and it augurs well for the future. It's great if those matches can be made for sure. You've uh, done that before. Um, Bob, I, I appreciate you taking the time to visit with me here on this podcast. And um, good, you've brought a lot of information to fans today, as well as uh, some great uh, colorful stories as well. Oh, don't forget to call Trampler. Let's, let's review the 15 years. Uh, I will call him. Yeah, I mean, like everybody, like when everybody says – whether they've seen it or not, but they've heard about it, you got to see the caveman Lee Johnny LeCicero fight. Amazing! Is that the? I mean, people say Hagler Hearns. Yeah, that fight was the most unbelievable fight. And what about Iran Barkley and Robbie Sims? Oh my the God! Eighth round, were you covered in blood like all the rest? Yeah, of it was spewing at ringside. Yeah, right. My notes had unbelievable, unbelievable all over them. Yeah, that that, that series, the top ranked series for those fifteen years, produced. 
just extraordinary fights and, and not only great fights, but also, as we pointed out, as boxing often does, some odd experiences inside and outside the ring, and all of them were worth reliving. So, well, before we get off, you remember that time? I'll never forget it. Where fight A, I forget who it was, is beating the hell out of fight B, has him on the ropes, and the referee jumps in to stop the fight. Fight yes. And Fighter B, in desperation, throws a punch and knocks Fighter A out. John Meekins was one of the fighters. And they had to figure out who won the fight. Yes. And they awarded it to the guy who got knocked out. Because they were stopping the fight as he was getting knocked out. Yeah, Frank Capuchin was the ref. It was John Meekins against somebody. And as Meekins was coming to finish him up, boom, you're right. He he got knocked down, too. And they couldn't figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, we saw just about everything. There was the one instance where the fighter came to the ring and didn't have his shorts on, and they had to go back and huddle around him to put the shorts on. It, it, the story's everything, never ended. Everything, but. with cups being installed while they were in the ring. The guy forgot his, his cup. Yeah, that's another yeah. one. So, <laughs> very bizarre. There should be at least a sitcom that you create from that series. Absolutely. Hey, Bob, thank you so much. We'll look forward to seeing that. I'll check in with Bruce to find out what they're going to – what they're going to be showing, but those those fights will be well worth seeing. Well, good okay, luck. Yeah, keep, keep well, keep safe. Yeah, you good luck to you in bringing boxing back, and you you and your family stay safe. Take care. Thank you. So our chat with Bob Arum that mixed the present with the past. Uh, him talking about uh, his plans for uh, moving forward when things start to get back to normal, and you heard him be very optimistic that in June. He would begin, he, his company, uh, and, and, and thus ESPN as well, would begin doing boxing, um, albeit with no uh, crowd, but uh, they would begin doing boxing again. And as he said, when they do do it, they're going to ramp up rather quickly in terms of the number of shows done. And we were able to go back down memory lane to talk about a lot of great events that, uh, you know, that happened. And um, I found that fascinating, Trip. Now, who is going to play Bob Arum in his life story? Do we have any? You suggested oh. Tom Cruise, didn't you, at one point? Yeah, well, he, <laughs> we're going to have to have a couple of people play him because, you know, as he as he got older, he started, I mean, he's been at this for over 40 years. So might have to get a couple of actors to play him. So, by the way, you, you picked the opponent for the fight in Puerto Rico. And have yeah. you ever thought, what would it be like if you were a match, if you never got into media but were a matchmaker? How would you have done? Well, based on that one, apparently, uh, some promoters wouldn't really like me very much as a matchmaker, <laughs> would they? Because I managed to, if in fact my recommendation was the one, along with Steve Farhad, that put it over the top for Salido to fight Juan Manuel Lopez, I succeeded in knocking off the superstar in the <laughs> top-ranked stable. I'm guessing that if I did that on a regular basis, they might not be so happy with me. And, and let me say, by the way, of course, it, they do want great fights. It's just that when you have an actual absolute superstar, your mission is not to get them knocked off too uh, too quickly. But um, but so I, I'm not sure that I I you know that I showed my medal as a matchmaker with that one. But it would be interesting. It's a very unique uh, uh, skill. And uh, Top Rank, by the way, has one of the best matchmakers in the world, and Bruce Trampler, uh, among others, uh, who've worked for their their company. And one of the expressions that you hear 
too much is styles make fights, but a matchmaker has got to be able to analyze a boxer who's going to have a style that's going to make a big fight. Absolutely. And some of, so much of it does boil down to that uh, because it's not just the records and what, you know, and, and, and who's done what you have to look at how these fighters fight and figure out if you can, and it's not an exact science, will they make a good match? Fantastic. So you were lucky to get off the island of Puerto Rico. People knew you were the reason that that yeah, true. Yes. <laughs> you could have been in trouble. Got again, some uh, great questions from our audience. Where do you rate Mark Two Sharp Johnson among the fighters you've covered? And has he been a little bit overlooked by this current generation? Yeah, Mark Johnson was a fantastic uh, fighter who won the flyweight title, defended it seven times, and uh, moved up to junior bantam and won that title and defended it several times, and was inducted in the Hall of Fame in uh, 2012, the year that I went into the Hall of Fame, and so I spent a lot of time with Mark there, and he's a wonderful guy, and was a terrific fighter. The thing that, that probably makes him a little bit overlooked in, in, in terms of overall boxing history, there are two things. One, of course, he fought in the lower weight class, where at that time, uh, there, especially as an American, there wasn't as much attention focused on those lower weight classes. And number two, he never had a big rivalry. There wasn't a fighter in those weight classes, though he fought some very good fighters and fought tough competition, there wasn't anyone that would help him create a long-lasting rivalry. Um, and, uh, and you would go, just to go away, a couple weight divisions above that, a uh, perfect example is that, you know, uh, and this was just shortly, you know, after he stopped fighting, but the uh, Marco Antonio Barrera, Juan Manuel Marquez, or, uh, Marquez uh, the uh, uh, Manny Pacquiao, and um, Eric Morales group, they had that, that was a great quartet that vaulted them into legendary status because they were all able to fight each other. Mark Johnson didn't have that. And so uh, he doesn't get as much attention as he might. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because those great rivalries, when there's a rematch or sometimes if you're really lucky, when a fight goes to a third fight, that really yeah. pumps up the interest. Yeah, very much so. Okay. And uh, next question how do we get fighters to fight three or four times a year as opposed to one or two times a year? Oh boy, that is the $64,000 question, or I guess that today would be the $64 million question. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it's a very, answering that question brings with it what I can already see once I answer it will be, you know, fireworks on Twitter because Clearly, we are more aware of the safety of fighters and how fighters that fought in the uh, 50s and 60s and even into the 70s that fought six, seven, eight, nine times a year in some cases, uh, well, although in the 40s and 50s, even more sometimes, uh, it wasn't the healthiest thing for them to do. And we still have young fighters who fight more often. Uh, when they're before they become elite fighters, but they still they don't fight that often. Clearly, that was not good for boxers, and it was too much punishment for them to absorb. In the 80s, things started to become where the benchmark was to fight three or four times a year if you were an elite fighter or a champion. That was what you were shooting for. 
in the 90s, it went down to definitely three. <laughs> and after 2000, it started to become two times a year. Unless, of course, you're uh, Gary Russell, in which case you make an annual appearance every year. <laughs> um, but I believe that fighting, if the major fighters only fight twice a year, it is difficult for the sport to maintain its momentum. And it's difficult for those fighters, I think, to, to service their fan base. I definitely understand why fighting too often is an issue for fighters. And I also understand the argument that is often made, hey, you fans are not the person that's going to be suffering when you're 52 years old from having fought too much. The fighter is the person that, that you know, is going to be in that situation. And I totally understand that. But I think that if a champion can fight three times a year, just three, that will help the sport and help his legacy as well. And also even help him in terms of marketing opportunities and, uh, and, and, and creating the kind of continued fan interest that, that they would like. I don't know how you do that, you know, because there's numbers of TV dates available. And also, these fighters want their, their fee to be commensurate to what they've been getting. So maybe networks can't afford to have them three times a year. But uh, I think it's one of the things that boxing really needs to try to work toward. And would you say it's it, right now, with you mentioned earlier in the show, all the great TV platforms, it's kind of a great era for boxing where you know if a good fight is made, it's going to get broadcast and a lot of people can see it. Right. Absolutely. There's some place for it to be held. Um, and remember, and here's another thing. The other, the other in, in the early days, like if you were a champion, you would fight some non-title fights and that were of lesser, on a lesser level. And the fighters knew that. And so they took a little less money, but then they would fight the bigger fights. The problem is that this environment doesn't lend itself to that. Okay. And our final question. What was your favorite top-ranked boxing fight or card, I should say, on ESPN that you called? Yeah, I, you know, this isn't this. They asked the question specifically, "What was your favorite?" So I'm not going to say it was the best fight. It was a good fight. There were other amazing fights that I could look at and say they were maybe more exciting or more thrilling, or the overall card was better. But my favorite moment, looking back on the top-ranked boxing series. Uh, happened in uh, October 12th of 1994 when I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico in the pit and announced the fight in which Johnny Tapia against Henry Martinez won the WBO Super Flyweight Championship. The reason it's such an important fight for me is, is my favorite is Johnny Tapia from 1990 to 1994. Now, he'd fought before that on our top-ranked boxing series and had been an excellent fighter. And then in 1990, fell into an abyss of drug use uh, and other and drinking. And it led him to literally live on the street. And for four years, Johnny Tapia led a terrible life in which there were moments where I think some people thought he might not live, let alone fight again. In 1994, he came back to the sport of boxing, somehow got himself back, came back to the sport, uh, fought six times that year. And the sixth fight was in October when he took on Henry Martinez. 
It was a packed crowd at the pit in Albuquerque. The excitement level was off the charts. And in a very, very competitive match, Johnny Tapia scored uh, finally a TKO victory over Martinez. And when he did that, I paused and said, Johnny Tapia is all the way back. And he was, in fact, all the way back as a, uh, as a fighter and as a person. And that led to what would be the best period of Johnny Tapia's life, um, one that unfortunately didn't last long enough because when he left the sport of boxing, he left us too early. Um, but uh, with all the troubles that Johnny Tapia faced in his life prior to that and even after, that one shining moment when he won the title against Henry Martinez and basked in the, the glow of uh, the warmth of his hometown fans in uh, Albuquerque was an extraordinary moment. And for me, probably my favorite one on the Top Rank Boxing Series. That's fantastic. And do you ever look back when you have, do you have many fights where you have a personal vested interest in one of the fighters where you want them to win? Or is that tough to do? Yeah, I try never to do that. And, and, and I, I really try never to do that. And I try never to feel like I, you know, some stories like that are so extraordinary that I certainly, if I look, when I look back at the call, I don't think anybody would say I was, you know, calling the fight uh, on behalf of Tapia or calling it in his favor. And I didn't, and I was very conscious of doing that, but I'm a human being. And I, the idea of Johnny Tapia coming back and winning that world title clearly touched my heart. And uh, so there are moments when you can be caught up in something that's quite emotional. People you know, you know, you try not to, to, to have favorites. You try not to, some, some it, it, you know, it's no different than life. Some people we react to better than other people. And so you try very hard not to do that. In that instance, I have to say, though, that uh, when that was over with and, uh, and he had done it, um, you know, I, I, I felt very happy for him. That's fantastic. Hey, by the way, your career has really taken off in the last couple of months. You've got now a podcast up to three episodes. There, yeah, exactly. And I'm working with you. That's, that was my highest aspiration. Yeah, my father-in-law, by the way, said we should have more Al on the shows. I didn't take that very well. No. <laughs> but tell, tell us about something you're doing now called Cameo. And it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, I, you know, this is so much fun. It, it's, it's, it, for those people that don't know of it, it's, it's Cameo. It's, a lot of people do know about it. It's where people can deliver personal messages to fans or, or you know, anybody. And there are many uh, entertainment and sports personalities on this. And you just go find Cameo. Cameo, I think it's Cameo.com, I guess. Uh, that we'll put up the website. And uh, the, the, um, what it boils down to is all these personalities and sports figures and athletes and everybody can do a personal message. Let's say you have a, uh, you want to congratulate a coworker because they got a promotion and his favorite actor or sportscaster or athlete is so-and-so you, you contact and they, you do a message for him. And I've done, uh, now I just started about a month ago with this and I've done a number of them and it's fun. You know, I did one for, young lady named Paige Gilbert, who is a 16-year-old uh, um, uh, amateur boxer. And 
uh, one of her relatives uh, and friends wanted to cheer her up and say, what, you know, what, give her some thoughts on how she can get through this period. And what I did was I channeled Andre Ward, who we had on this show, talking about how important it is for fighters right now during this period to number one, stay in shape, watch what they ate, and mentally stay strong. Uh, and I kind of channeled his words in talking to her. So it was kind of fun. And uh, some of them are frivolous, some are more, more, uh, you know, more serious and uh it's a fun thing so anyway i i am on cameo and uh i've enjoyed i've enjoyed doing it a lot well that's fantastic and for and, uh, you I, I there's a discount trip mitchell if you want me to get send you a special message i think i'm going to use you when i get in a fight with my new wife i'll have you do the apology i will yes i will handle that and and i and and we know that uh your father-in-law likes me so i can i can intervene in that regard as well Thank you very much. I appreciate right. it. <laughs> well, this has been a fun show. Um, and uh, we hope that you enjoyed uh, seeing it. And uh, next, our next show, we are going to have uh, Sean Porter, the great uh, welterweight, former welterweight champion and a welterweight contender, terrific guy as well, uh, is going to be uh, our guest. And uh, we're looking forward to that. So we will see you next time on Albertson Unplugged. My thanks to Tripp uh, for his fine work. Uh, and um, we'll see you next time.